Blog Talk Radio. You are now listening to True Murder, the most shocking killers in true crime history and the authors that have written about them. Gacy, Bundy, Dahmer, The Night Stalker, BTK. Every week, another fascinating author talking about the most shocking and infamous killers in true crime history. True Murder, with your host, journalist and author, Dan Zupanski. Good evening. In June 2014, 19-year-old Aaron Corwin was living in a quiet, living a quiet life in 29 Palms, California, expecting her first child with her husband, U.S. Marine Corporal John Corwin, until the day she drove off into the desert and never returned. As temperatures climbed into the hundreds, friends and family teamed up with local law enforcement in a grueling search of Joshua Tree National Park. Nearly two months after her disappearance, Corwin's body was found at the bottom of an abandoned mine shaft, a homemade grot wrapped around her throat. Suspicions mounted within the tight-knit Marine community as residents questioned if the killer was one of their own. Fellow Marine Christopher Lee and his wife lived next door to the Corwins, and the two young couples had leaned on each other for support. But detectives soon discovered that Chris and Aaron's relationship had developed into a whirlwind romance that consumed them both and called the paternity of Corwin's baby into question. Lee told investigators he'd been out hunting the day of Corwin's disappearance, but his claims of innocence soon began to crumble. And while Aaron was researching baby names, Lee was reportedly searching the Internet for ways to dispose of a human body. Through interviews, court records, and extensive research, best-selling true crime author Shanna Hogan constructs a chilling story of betrayal, deception, and tragedy. The book that we're featuring this evening is Secrets of a Marine's Wife, a true story of marriage, obsession, and murder, with my special guest, journalist and author, Shanna Hogan. Welcome to the program, and thank you very much for agreeing to this interview, Shanna Hogan. Thank you for having me. I'm honored to be here. Thank you very much. It is an absolute pleasure. Uh, This is an incredible book, and thank you for this interview. Let's start off right away with the summer of 2014, when you write that you've heard about this case. Uh, Tell us where you were living at that time, and tell us what you thought about writing about this case at that time. Yeah, I um, I live in Phoenix, Arizona, so I'm about a five-hour drive from uh, 29 Palms. It's something I pass any time I go to California. And, um, you know, I, I heard about the case just as Aaron as a missing person, and it made a lot of um, headlines and was featured in, in some missing persons programs when she was still, like, when they were still searching for her. And I was immediately drawn to her picture. They had a lot of photos of her with animals, and she looked so sweet and innocent. And I was just following the case um, as an interested true crime junkie, um, hoping she would be found alive. And uh, as the case progressed and more and more twists and turns and, and then finally an arrest and her body recovery, I, was, I, I figured this would be a, a really excellent book and I was the one who wanted, I wanted to be the one who wrote it. Let's talk about, as you write in the book, about Erin Corwin and her early life and her parents, Laura and Bill, and uh, how she came to this place in her life. So tell us about her early life with her parents. Yeah, Erin Corbin was a, a really small town girl, grew up in Oak Ridge, uh, Tennessee, and really was sheltered. She was homeschooled. She was also um, one of five children adopted um, to Laura and Bill Hedlin. They had two natural-born children, and then they adopted five more. Most of the children they adopted had de- developmental disorders, Erin did not. They took her in at two weeks old and raised her. And so, like I said, she was homeschooled and pretty sheltered. She really loved animals, and they, um, she had an affinity for horses. So her parents got her a horse, and she used to ride and care for it every day. And she was a very sweet girl. Um, 
very, very shy, didn't like to be the center of attention, and um, had a lot of friends and was well-respected and well-liked, and it didn't seem like this would be anything that would ever happen to her. Um, at the age of 16, she started dating uh, a young man her age um, named John Corwin. This was her, she had boyfriends before this, but this was her first real love. And he was um, just a small-town boy, too, and um, they met at the barn originally, and they started dating, and she fell very quickly in love. And John's whole goal in life was to be a Marine, and he told Karen that right away in their relationship, that that's what he wanted to do. So um, soon after they started dating, he joined the Marines, and they stayed together with the intention of one day Aaron joining him wherever he was stationed. Now, you read about the life on the military base that, uh, or with him signing up for military service, that they did not spend, they agreed to, to get married and, and hook up, but they did not spend that initial period of time uh, together. Tell us about this separation that was um, part of the military service, um, which didn't help in this uh, beginning stages of the relationship. Yeah, for the first, when John went off to boot camp, they stayed connected through phone calls and um, writing letters. And then John um, was became stationed in 29 songs. And not a lot of people know this, but um, people in the military are paid more when they have when they get married. And so um, John also would have received better housing if he was married. So that's why they decided to get married when they did. And they eloped in Vegas after a Marines ball and with the intention of um, he was about to go on deployment and Aaron was going to stay behind in Tennessee. So for the first year of their marriage, Aaron lived in an apartment in Tennessee um, near her family while John was in the military and in deployment in Japan. And by the time he came back and settled in their apartment, he was quite a different person. Um, he grew up really fast. And Erin was still the same small-town girl. And so um, after that year, she moved down to 29 Palms to be with him. But she, you know, it was a very different guy than she had left behind. You talk about in 2011 that uh, Erin at 16 gets hired at a company called Tractor Supply as a cashier. Uh, who does she meet there? And um, tell us about that relationship that has started. Yeah, Erin meets her best friend, uh, Jesse Trentham, at the tractor supply. And Jesse was a little bit older than Erin, and it, she ended up becoming her best friend and her confidant. And later on, her friendship would play a key role in solving this case. Um, but they were very close, and she told her everything. And they spent a lot of time while Jesse, while Erin was in Tennessee, driving around, um, you know, getting food together, gossiping. There was not a lot to do in Oak Ridge, and they um, spent a lot of their time together. And then when Aaron moved to um, 29 Palms, they continued their relationship, their friendship long distance, talking on the phone um, almost every day. And that was a big um, person in her life, especially as she was pretty isolated on the military base. And she um, talked more and more to Jesse. Now, when they move to their apartment on the base, uh, who do they meet um, and who does she meet in that apartment building? Yeah, um, they, the apartment building had, it was on base, so there were only other Marine couples. And she first meets their downstairs neighbor, Asling and Connor Maliki, and those, um, those were acquaintances of them that they became close friends. Um, and then next door, right next door to them, they shared a kitchen wall, was Chris Lee and his wife um, and their six-year-old daughter, Liberty. And so, um, you know, they ended up, all three of the couples ended up becoming close friends. They would get together for barbecues and cookouts. Um, they would go into town together. They would go to the desert and shoot guns and ride four-wheelers, and um, the three couples, it, it almost was like a Melrose Place type thing where they would go in and out of each other's apartments and come and go and talk to each other, and the three girls formed a friendship as well as the three guys, 
and then all of them together as a couple. They celebrated birthdays together and all that sort of thing. And that's very common in the military for families. You know, they lean on each other a lot um, because, uh, you know, that's all they have. So that became little Aaron's little family in, in California was her neighbor's. Now tell us what uh, her parents we we didn't really talk about the kind of confidence her parents had in her living on her own and being married so young uh and and also uh, we talk about Aaron and also she wanted to have a family so tell us about her attempts to get pregnant and what the family thought about this early marriage at such a young age Yeah Aaron's family was very hesitant at first. They thought that Aaron was just way too young to get married and um, thought that also that she had been a homebody and, like I said, isolated and sheltered in Tennessee, had never really traveled anywhere as big as California. And so they told her, you know, when she first wanted to get married, they told her to wait and think about it. Um, But, of course, Aaron was 18 at that point and very much in love, and it's very hard to you know, convince a teenage girl um, to give up the love of her life. And so um, they eventually decided to support the marriage, and um, they sent Aaron to Tennessee, I mean to to California, um, with some fear and worry, and especially Aaron's mom, Laura, was very worried about how um, Aaron would take to the the new place. And, And Aaron always wanted to be a mom. She was um, very good with children. Like I said, she loved animals and loved babies and really wanted to be a mom. So they started trying right away after she, you know, relocated. And in January 2014, she found out that she was pregnant and she was just overjoyed. What did John feel about this uh, pregnancy? What was his feelings about this, and what happened with the pregnancy? Yeah, John um, was John was also very happy. He was a little bit more worried about the realistics of you know having a baby at such a young age. They didn't get paid a lot in the military. You know, they had their apartments, and um, it's obviously right. very expensive to raise a child. So John was um, wary of how they would make it work financially. But Aaron, um, you know, was really overjoyed, and that kind of spread to John, and and he started getting excited and called his dad and said, you know, you're going to be a grandpa. And then just a few short weeks after she found out that she was pregnant, Aaron miscarried, and her downstairs neighbor, Asling, took her to the hospital, and um, she met with a doctor, and they told her, you know, that she had miscarried, and Erin was just devastated, and it really threw her into a depression that lasted, you know, several weeks as she coped with the loss of her baby. As she told her friend Jessie, uh, what was the relationship like? Was she happy in the relationship, especially after this miscarriage? What did this miscarriage do in terms of strengthening or weakening this relationship? What did she tell Jessie about her marriage? Yeah, that's a great um, question. Uh, at first, you know, when when Aaron moved out there, they, you know, seemed like they were happy. But soon they started having money troubles right away. And like I said, they don't get paid a lot on base. Um, they had to buy, you know, furniture for their apartment and trucks. And so the money went very, very quickly. And soon they really had, um, they were living paycheck to paycheck, struggling to pay the bills and growing an increasing amount in debt on their credit cards. And so um, that caused a lot of fights and a lot of tension between the two, which Aaron regularly confided into Jesse that they were having problems. But things really went downhill after the miscarriage. That's when um, their relationship really started having serious problems. Aaron told Jesse that she felt like um, that John wasn't grieving the same way as she was, that he didn't care about the miscarriage as much. And, you know, that's, um, that's something that's, common you know a guy doesn't have the same connection with the baby as the mother obviously when it's in that early stages of development and so um john wasn't uncaring he just didn't really express his feelings very well and so that caused a rift between the two and they started spending more and more time apart and aaron felt like she couldn't connect with john that they 
you know, that they had um, that, that lack of communication, and that's what drove the wedge between the two of them. Now, you introduced Chris Lee and Nicole and their young daughter, Liberty, and Chris had been, as you write, had been a tour duty in Afghanistan, but recently he had gone to Afghanistan again. Tell us a little bit about, as you write, about Chris Lee, his marriage, and his tours of duty. Yeah, Chris Lee um, was grew up in Alaska, so very far away from, you know, California, a very different climate. And he was the type of guy, you know, was not into social media, was really into hunting and, and fishing and being in the wilderness, um, camping and being outdoors. And he was a little bit older than the other guys on base who were junior Marines in their you know, second and third year. Chris was on a six-year contract, and he was almost, he was five years into it by the time Aaron moved in. So he was around 26, and they had a six-year-old daughter. He met his wife, Nicole, at high, in high school, and they were high school sweethearts. And, um, and Chris also had, you know, served two tours of duty in Afghanistan. And the second tour, he came back. Um, during both tours, he never saw any combat, um, and he um, he kind of was disappointed in that, and he had signed up to you know be a hero in the Marines and had hoped to you know kill bad guys and do something meaningful. And when he came back from the second tour, not having done much at all, he was very disappointed and became depressed as well. And that's what initially um, connected John. I mean, connected Chris with Aaron, their mutual depression, that they were both sad at this point in their lives for different reasons. Now, we talked, uh, you write about Aaron loving horses right from when she was in the 4-H club, and she just fell in love with, with horses. And she had to give up her horse, sell her horse, when they went to the 29 Palms military base. You talk about Nicole, um having problems with Chris in her marriage. And so as a form of therapy and an outlet, they discovered this Isabel Megley and her horse rescue ranch. Tell us about the people's interest, Nicole, and then later Aaron's interest in this horse ranch. Yeah. Like you said, Aaron was very into horses and had to sell her horse. And so initially when she moved in, Aaron and Nicole bonded over their mutual love of horses. And Nicole had been going to the the horse rescue for about a year. This was a place where Isabel Megley, the owner of the horse rescue, rehabilitated horses that were, um, you know, neglected or abused by their owners or had been found. Um, And so she had many horses on the ranch. And um, it was very popular. It was a very popular destination with military wives because for $100 a month, um, they could sponsor a horse and they could be out there as much as they wanted, um, you know, uh, ride the horse, be able to feed the horse, you know, care for the horse and um, do that without the cost of a barn and and stuff like that. So um, Chris, and Nicole had been going there, and that was a big thing for Chris in helping overcome his depression. And so when Erin expressed her horses, Nicole and Chris started taking her as well, Erin, to the horse rescue as well. And at the horse rescue, Erin um, fell in love with a um, pretty shy, neglected horse that wasn't really connecting with anyone else, and it connected with Erin. And so they started spending a lot of their time at that horse rescue together, And that's another thing that caused the wedge between her and John because John was not into horses. And so she ended up spending more time with the Lees as a couple and um, being with them at the horse rescue throughout throughout the fall and winter of 2013 and um, early 2014. That's where she spent a lot of her time. Now you you write about how these people – finally kissed they finally were together enough they finally had a connection and they finally went for it and had a kiss but you talk about the close proximity and the relationship with these neighbors and you talk about Isling and Connor and a little get together and what she witnesses and what she does as a result tell us about that 
Yeah. Um, so they had been getting together regularly for um, to watch The Walking Dead, and Erin never watched the show because she didn't like the graphic violence. And so one night, um, after quite a bit of flirting between Chris and Erin, and quite a bit of talking, they kind of had forged a friendship based on their depression. And so one night, um, they were Aaron was in the bedroom playing video games with Chris while everyone else was out there watching The Walking Dead. And in the living room of, or in the bedroom of her own house, um, Chris kissed Aaron for the first time, and it was quite unexpected. And Aaron immediately um, felt you know, uncomfortable about it, but also later told Chris that she also liked it and, you know, felt a connection with him. And so that set off what happened to be an affair. And it became a dirty secret among the three couples because soon after um, they were, you know, getting together surreptitiously to, you know, engage in, you know, um, kissing and flirting. And Chris ended up installing a app on his phone where he could communicate secretly with Aaron and they sent a lot of messages back and forth describing their feelings for each other and so then soon after Aaron um, and John got together I mean Aaron and Chris were together uh, at, on Valentine's Day and the other couples went off to bed and so they found themselves alone in the apartment complex of Asling Maliki and um, they thought that they were had some privacy so they started kissing and Asling walked out of her uh, her bedroom and saw the two of them kissing and immediately um, freaked out she went to the kitchen and started making noise in the kitchen and um, to try and distract them and then the next thing she knew Chris had run out of the apartment complex and when she saw Aaron Aaron acted like she was asleep and didn't know what was going on but Asling later confronted both of them separately, and they admitted that they've been having an affair. They asked her to keep it secret, and Asling agreed but told them, you guys need to end this. This is going to get you both in trouble because one of the other aspects of the military is uh, having an affair is, is against the law, against the rules of the military. So they, um, if they would have gotten caught, Chris could have faced repercussions in his military career. And so she told them that that wasn't a good idea, and um, they she they kept saying to her that we're going to break up, this is going to be over. Um, but now, Asling and then Connor found out because Asling told him. So here, this affair between the the three couples, um, you know, the downstairs neighbors knew, obviously Aaron and Chris knew, but their spouses didn't know for a while. Nicole and John were in the dark. So it created a pretty tense and uncomfortable environment for those who knew about it. How does Nicole eventually find out, and what does she do? What does she say, and whose fault does she believe all of this is? Yeah, Nicole, um, she started getting suspicious about the amount of time Chris was spending with Aaron. And so one night she took his cell phone, and she took the memory card out of his cell phone and put it in her computer. And that allowed her to have access to the hidden messages that Chris was sending. And um, so she did that in the middle of the night when he was um, drunk and asleep. So she woke him up furious and started cussing him out. And um, Chris claimed that they, the affair had never progressed beyond kissing and that he, it was because of his depression, blamed Aaron um, for, you know, for coming on to him. And Aaron, uh, Nicole ended up blaming Aaron as well for the affair. And so Nicole wanted to confront John and, and tell him about it. And so for a few weeks, she didn't. And they were just keeping it all a secret. And um, she also agreed with her her husband agreed to go through counseling and end the affair. So the communication between Aaron and Chris abruptly stopped. Um, Nicole was monitoring her husband's phone, making sure he didn't have any communication with her. And so um, she also found out that Asling knew and was furious at Asling for not telling her. So um, for a while uh, that's what ended the affair. And then 
and Nicole felt like John should know about the affair. So um, Nicole, one night when they were all getting together for a cookout, John was in the kitchen washing some meat in the sink when Nicole came up behind him and said, I need to tell you something. Um, Aaron's been having an affair with my husband. And John was very stoic about it, very upset, of course. But after Nicole revealed everything, uh, Aaron came downstairs and Nicole cursed her out, said um, some nasty things to her, chased her up the stairs back to her apartment and said, if you ever touch my husband again, I'll kill you. And so that not only now was the affair exposed, but the relationship between the three couples had all but disintegrated. And there was quite a bit of drama at that apartment complex after that. What does John decide to do with the relationship, in the relationship, he and Aaron, about this affair? Of course, they said they've, they promised not to continue with it. But uh, what are John's thoughts about this marriage now? Yeah, Aaron... Um... John confronted Aaron and said, you know, at one point asked, Are you do you want to leave? Do you want to leave me? And Aaron said, No, I still love you. And so um, they agreed to work on their marriage and with the um, understanding that the affair was completely over. And so um, John, you know, it drove John even further apart because um, he knew his wife had betrayed him, but he also wanted to make it work with her. So they continued to um, stay together and try to work on their marriage, but the communication broke down even further between the two of them. Now she's still communicating with her friend Jesse Trenum. What is she telling Jesse at that time about her marriage and about the relationship with Chris, despite yeah, what she's saying Aaron, to other people? Yeah. Um, you know, here she is telling everyone at the military base that the affair is over, that um, she's not seeing Chris anymore, but she's confiding in Jesse. The one person that she confided in was Jesse because she was not judging her. And she told her that she was still having the affair with Chris, that she loved him. And not only was they, they having an affair, she hoped to join them in Alaska when he was discharged from the military. She wanted to pursue a relationship with him, um, a very serious relationship with him where she would ultimately, where they would divorce their respective spouses and ultimately marry, and that Aaron would ultimately become the stepmother to Chris's sexual daughter. And so it was just something that they discussed quite a bit and it was a secret between the two of them that the affair never ended. And so um, that's the person Aaron con- con- um, confided in was Jesse. And so she knew the affair was ongoing, but no one else did. You talk about that from all appearances, it looks like everybody's healed at the apartment building. It looks like everybody's trying to put it behind them. But we're talking about May and June of this 2014. Um, What are they planning in June regarding uh, Aaron's mother? And, uh, yeah, tell us about what, what's planned. Yeah, from all outside appearances, it looks like the communication between the couples had discontinued. Um, they tried to, you know, make an effort at becoming friends again. Um, and at one point, you know, John even had a drink with Chris. He was trying to put it behind him and, you know, hope the tension would go away. And... <clears throat> Um, and so for the next couple months, that's how things continued at the apartment complex. And Aaron was about to turn 20 in July. And so to celebrate her birthday, her mom was going to come down to, um, to 29 Palms, and they were going to spend some time together. And so um, Aaron told John that she was going to go out into the desert and scout some scenic locations to take her mom to while she was in town. And her mom, meanwhile, prepared for her visit. Um, Erin asked um, her mom to make some of her favorite recipes, and she went out and bought all the ingredients for that. And so her mom planned on taking her to San Diego, to the zoo, and, um, you know, 
And so Erin was very much looking forward to that, doing all that for her 20th birthday. Um, but that in late June, June 28th, um, she got up that morning intending to go to the desert and spot out locations for her mom's visit. Let's go back a little bit because uh, Jesse is privy to some knowledge that her mother, Lore, certainly isn't. And also at the same time, or in the same stretch of time, we have Chris going out hunting into the Joshua Tree National Park on June 22nd with a friend. Tell us about this information that she imparts to her friend Jesse, what she plans to do with that information regarding her mother, before we talk about the hunting trip June 22nd that Chris goes on. Yeah, John, uh, Aaron um, told Jesse, like I said, of course, that the affair was still going on. And they had a hard time getting together. And so Chris and Aaron arranged for a secret rendezvous that June 28th where they were going to get together in the desert and talk about their relationship and talk about um, – the fact that Erin was pregnant again. Erin discovered she was pregnant, and she believed that Chris was the father of the baby. And John, she also told John she was pregnant, and John believed he was the father of the baby. So um, uh, Erin wanted to talk to Chris about, you know, the status of their relationship and everything. And so she went, um, she had planned on that Saturday that she, she told John that she was scouting out locations for her mom, but she was actually going out in the desert to meet Chris. And so um, Chris, though, uh, a week before that, a week before that Saturday, had he was a big hunter, and he liked to go coyote hunting with his downstairs neighbor, Connor, and also um, some of the other people from the military. And so um, he planned on going he, on June 22nd, a week before the um, excursion, Aaron's excursion, he went into the desert with another friend, and they scouted out mining locations. They went far into Joshua Tree National Park and found a bunch of mines that were um, pretty remote. And for some odd reason that his friend didn't really know at the time, Chris was just enamored with the mines and fascinated with, you know, how deep they were and how remote they were. And he took, his friend took a lot of pictures of those mines. And that would end up becoming key later in the investigation. You talk about those mines, and they took uh, the friend took some photos that would be important later, just of that trip on his telephone. Uh, and so those those plans were set for that Saturday. Uh, tell us a, a little more about. Chris in the week just before, uh, what I wanted to ask was the announcement about the birth that Aaron told Jesse and also some of the things that he said regarding a surprise. So what about the announcement of the birth? What did he say regarding that? And what about the surprise? Yeah, so when Aaron found out she was pregnant and she told Chris, um, Chris asked her to wait tell anyone else um so john knew and chris knew but aaron wanted to tell her mom right away and chris asked her to wait one week and not tell anyone and aaron agreed that she was going to tell her mom in person that she was pregnant so um chris seemed to be really excited about the baby and he talked about leaving nicole he talked about having you know what they would name that baby and it seemed like he, you know, was very excited to be a dad again. And so um, as they were exchanging text messages back and forth, Chris said that he had a surprise for Aaron on that Saturday. But, um, and Aaron kept probing and asking, you know, what's the surprise? What do you have in mind? And Chris just kept saying, you know, a surprise, I'm not going to tell you. And so Aaron talked to her friend Jesse and said, you know, he's got some big surprise plan for me. And Jesse replied back, do you think it's a ring? Do you think he's going to propose? And Aaron excitedly texted back, you know, maybe, I hope so. And so Aaron went out to the desert that day, planning on meeting Chris and expecting 
to talk about their status with their kids and also to possibly, um, you know, discuss marriage and, you know, maybe expecting that that surprise would be an engagement ring. Right. Let's use this as an opportunity to stop for a second to talk about our sponsor, which is FabFitFun. The 2019 FabFitFun Summer Box is on sale now. Do you love discovering new products? Are you a beauty and fashion maven constantly on the hunt for the next best thing? Ever read about or spot something online that you've always wanted to try but never have? Then you must try FabFitFun. FabFitFun allows women everywhere to discover new products as well as including rave review, must-have brands that you know and love. These are full-size products, no sample of anything. Every box is guaranteed to have over $200 plus in retail value. The 2019 Summer Box total retail value equals $269.95 to $467.95. Fantastic value. Many products' individual value is more than the entire cost of the box, and you can customize your box by choosing some products and add-ons with each box or be surprised with each box. Some of the few of the great products that my wife Lisa received in her 2019 summer box were a Vicks Paula Hermony Lotus Towel, a Jennifer Zuner Star Double Necklace, and Kula Organic SPF 30 Makeup Setting Sunscreen Spray. My wife always loves to be surprised with the great new products that she gets in each box, and the summer box was no exception. And she can't wait to get her next FabFitFun box. Sign up for Fat Fit Fun today. These boxes always sell out. Use my code MURDER to get $10 off your first box. Go to fabfitfun.com to sign up and start getting the box for a life well lived. Use promo code MURDER to get $10 off your first box. That's over $200 for only $39.99. Go to fabfitfun.com and use my code MURDER to get $10 off your first Fab Fit Fun box. Now, Shanna, we were talking about the morning, the the day that Jesse knows and John knows that she is going out to look and scout for places in Joshua Tree National Park. Chris is told people he's going out hunting. Um, In part of his story, he contacts his friend Connor from the apartment building, um, Eisling's husband, Connor. What does he tell Connor about that day? What are their plans for that day, that Saturday? Yeah, um, he had invited Connor to go coyote hunting into the park. And um, at first, Connor had had friends over and at that night before. And so that morning, he said he couldn't go. So Chris went into the desert and said, well, if things change, come and meet me out there and said, um, give me a call, but I'm going to have my phone on airplane mode to conserve battery power. And so um, Connor, uh, meanwhile, Chris was telling Aaron that he was planning on inviting Connor as a ruse and saying that he would go out with Connor and they would separate in the desert and then he would go back to Aaron and spend time together with Aaron. And Aaron thought that was a crazy, elaborate plan, but she agreed to it. And so, um, but then when Connor said he wasn't going out with them, Chris started going out into the desert by himself. And at the same time, um, uh, Connor had ended up being able to go after his friends left. So he called Chris and Chris said, meet me at this certain location. But Chris never showed up. And so Connor ended up spending like three hours that day trying to find Chris, driving in the desert looking for him, calling him repeatedly, texting him, and Chris never answered his phone. Now, of course, um, at the time, he's with Aaron, and not no one really knows about it. And so um, Connor um, didn't know either. And before, interesting detail, before he left that day, um, Chris had, uh, had asked to borrow a propane tank, and he had... Um, a gas tank in the back of his car that Connor noticed. And he asked Chris, what are you planning on doing with that? And he said, you know, he wanted to start a mine, a, a tire fire or um, ignite one of the mines on fire. 
And that was very common with Chris. He was very into weapons and into lighting stuff on fire and, you know, creating, um, uh, you know, explosions and stuff like that. So right. he went into the, the, um, the desert with those tools. And at the time, no one knew what he planned to do with those things. Now, you talk about the close-knit group, these, these six people, and Connor and, and Isling. And John, she is supposed to be back. Erin is supposed to be back from her search for locales for when her mom comes into town. He's uh, waiting at home, and around 4 p.m., she's supposed to be back. What does John do, and when does he do it? Uh, what is his response to her not coming back when she said? What does he think? Yeah, so John um, expected Erin to come back that afternoon, and she didn't. And then she didn't come back that night. And by the you know end of the day, he was panicked, very, very worried. And he you know called her phone repeatedly, sent multiple text messages asking where she was, um, very, very worried that something happened to her and that she may have gotten lost in the desert. And so by the next morning, when she still hadn't arrived back home, he called and reported her as a missing person. He also called Aaron's mom and told her what was happening, that Aaron was missing. And everyone assumed that Aaron must have um, uh, taken a wrong turn and was somewhere out in the desert. And so immediately that set off a thing, uh, and the Marine base, who were all honorable guys, and they you know, really took charge and went out into the Marine base searching for Aaron. And so that Sunday, a bunch of the Marines, um, got in their cars and spent the day driving around the desert trying to find Erin in her um, in her car, and no one was able to find her. You write about what happens with Chris supposedly coming back from his hunting trip, and obviously somebody's looking for him because his phone is dead till a little after three o'clock. What does Chris say in terms of uh, what happened with the hunting trip to say Nicole? What does he do after this hunting trip? Is it his behavior off or normal? Tell us what he does and what his behavior is like. Yeah. Chris um, came home from that hunting trip way, very, very late, not having had his phone on. Um, he, you know, found his wife in a complete panic, having an asthma attack. She was very worried about him and what he was doing. And so she calmed him down. He calmed her down, you know, said he was back, everything was okay. And it took quite a while to alleviate Nicole and um, calm her, uh, making her feel okay. And then he also had to talk to um, Connor and explain what happened. And he said he had this elaborate story about how he was out in the desert and some guy started shooting at him and he had to run away. So he was acting pretty abnormal, but chillingly calm. He was very calm, but not acting like himself. Had a bunch of stories that didn't really add up. So we're in that day. You talk about uh, Isling and Connor and the statements they made that she makes to Nicole and Connor makes to Chris uh, soon after when this search is undertaken because of Connor seeing the propane tank on the truck, what does Einsling tell Nicole? What does Nicole say back? And then the real, and the conversation with Connor and Chris, what was said? Yeah. So um, uh, when she find when Einsling finds out that Connor is or that Aaron is missing, she talks to Connor and finds out about that propane tank, and she calls up Nicole in a in a in a worry and with tears in her eyes and asked, you know, what happened? Um, have you seen Aaron? And Aaron and Nicole's reply is, I don't care what happened to that bitch. And so she hung up the phone and right away that caused quite a bit of an alarm for Isling. And so then um, Connor was also growing suspicious the longer that Aaron didn't return home. So at one point he confronted Chris what did you do to that girl? Did you do something to her? And Chris acted completely innocent and said, how can you even accuse me of that? 
denied knowing what happened with Aaron completely and said it was just a coincidence that they were both had, headed out to the desert that day. And, of course, that was a lie. Now, from here, we have to fast forward a little bit and talk about the detectives, uh, Travis Newport, uh, Daniel Hankey, um, Brian Zert, that become involved in this case and do the due diligence and do the kinds of things that everybody reads about and sees on television when an investigation is underway. They start looking, obviously, at John, because statistically that's what normally happens, and then they will look at other people. How do they quickly get to look at Chris? What is the procedure for them to be able to find out the story about the affair, even though when they first speak with Chris, he mentions nothing of it? Yeah, so the investigators went out and started doing their due diligence and You know, a missing person's case, the first thing they do is start interviewing the last people that were seen with her, interviewing people who knew her, you know, trying to determine if maybe this was, you know, a case where she had run off voluntarily. And so the first, one of the first things they do is they interview his, her neighbors. And so they speak to Chris right away and ask him, you know, did you know Aaron? And Chris somewhat mysteriously says, I didn't know that girl. The most contact I had with her was a occasional high and high. Um, and then he takes off and he leaves the apartment complex. <clears throat> so the next thing the, the investigators do is they go downstairs and they talk to Isling. And um, she says that's the exact opposite. They were having an affair. And so right away they become suspicious of Chris. At the same time, um, you know, learning about the affair, they become suspicious of John. You know, knowing um, that most mercy, um, you know, murder spouses cases, you know, sometimes involve the husband or the, the wife. And so um, knowing that Aaron had an affair, they wondered if that was a motive for a murder. And so they started looking at John and at Chris as their primary suspects in the case. Now, you write that soon they find her car. What? clues do they gather from that scene where they find the car and where do they find it yeah the car was only about five to ten miles from the marine base parked along the desert um, on a desert road and um, it looked like to the investigator that Aaron had driven out there had gotten out of her car and met someone Um, so they found tire tracks near the car and they you know took those for a forensic examination to see if they could match it with anyone um you know put out a call um that the um the car had been found and that really changed the investigation for everyone you know knowing that aaron wasn't had driven off somewhere um that something nefarious had happened and even her own mom at that point started suspecting that they would not be finding aaron alive You talk about the the tragedy that it is and, and the mother's anguish, um, Lore, and her eventually coming down and trying to do whatever she could, hanging around with John and waiting for a, a, a resolve to this that didn't end up being her dead. Um, tell us a little bit about, as you write, about that horrific weight that she endures. Yeah, Laura, right away, her, her and her husband jumped on a plane and went straight to 29 Palms to help out with the search and to be there. And so um, John, um, they, they for, a while, they, for a while, they stayed at the apartment complex with John and followed every um, detail. They actually went out to the desert where the car was found. And, you know, the waiting was just extraordinarily difficult for both families and especially for Laura, and she describes being on a plane and having to turn off her cell phone and how that was the most agonizing um, thing to be in the air for two hours and not be able to communicate, not have access to her cell phone to find out if anything was happening. And so for the next week or so, she spent 
you know, her, her time in uh, 29 Palms, you know, talking to detectives, talking to John, and also, oddly enough, passing by Chris in the hallways and Nicole and was very, um, very wary of both of them because um, at one point um, Chris or she was passing by Nicole and Nicole gave her this dirty look and Laura, knowing that she had done nothing wrong, had no reason for that, um, just kept staring at her and, you know, wondering, could they have something to do with my missing daughter? Now, when the detectives do diligence, they check cell phone records, they check um, and interview all kinds of people, and when they speak to Isabel Megley, they discover some things that Chris had said to her. So in putting this case together, they talk to a few people like that. What does Isabella Megley tell them that Chris had said to her? Um, yeah, um, Chris had confided in Isabel about his fascination with the mines. Uh, having gone out the week before and been in the mine um, area, he said that he had found one mine shaft that was so remote that no one would ever find it. And so Isabel conveyed that to detectives, and that started getting their suspicion that Chris had killed Aaron and that he had dropped her body in a mine shaft somewhere. And so that's what the police went out with the assumption of and started searching um, the desert and the mine shafts in particular, um, thinking that that's where Aaron could have been. Now, the central part of this incredible, heroic, you write, almost miraculous story is this search and the incredible volunteer team and professionals that undertake this, but these unselfish volunteers that come together. And you talk about the expanse that they would have to search and the amount of days that they were allotted and the resources. Tell us about this incredible search and what happens. It's incredible the timing of everything. Tell us about this search. Yeah, so the detectives, you know, have a certain amount of resources, and they were planning on spending a certain amount of days searching the mine shafts, and they had brought in this incredible group of volunteer search and rescue guys, um, the San Bernardino uh, Cave and Technical Rescue Team, and they had gone, they're, they're just a group that volunteers to help find people in the desert, people that are stranded in Joshua Tree National Park and the surrounding areas. So the detectives called this crew in and they started searching on their, you know, with the detectives and on their own. And when they had narrowed it down to the mine shafts, the detectives, um, uh, the crew started um, uh, kind of determining which mines would be most likely um, to hide a body. And they started um, realizing to find uh, out if anything was at the bottom of it, they would need to physically rappel down into the mine shaft. Wow. So that's what they did. They, they also set up a camera, a bucket camera, um, that was a, a GoPro camera connected to a bucket with a light in it that they dropped down into the other mine shafts and then re- review that footage to see if possibly something was at the bottom of those mine shafts. So they, they under, uh, determined about 100 different mine shafts in the desert that they were going to search, and they started going by each one of them, dropping cameras down, physically repelling down into them, and trying to determine if there was anything at the bottom. Now, in terms of what I mentioned timing, this search goes on for quite a while. There are a list of areas to search, and, and I could say a deadline. So what is the deadline and tell us what happens very close, very, very close to that deadline in terms of the search. Yeah, so um, they were going to spend, you know, a few weeks and search all 100 mine shafts. And so they had spent several weeks out there, countless volunteer hours. Um, you know, <clears throat> keep in mind this is the summer of 2014 in the desert. So the temperatures are insanely hot. Um, they were facing things like bee attacks, um, uh, you know, rattlesnakes, um, 
tremendous heat uh, and, you know, rain down in the mine shafts um, in dangerous conditions. So they had searched, you know, around 90 of these mine shafts. And then it came down to the last weekend that they were going to search and check off the last mines on their list. After that, the case was going to become a situation where um, it would have possibly gone cold. Um, they weren't going to be actively searching for her anymore, and they weren't going to be repelling the mine shafts anymore. And so around the end of the night, um, on the last day of the search, um, one of the crews came upon a particularly suspicious mine shaft, <clears throat> and it had a smell emanating from it of gasoline and propane. And so um, they became suspicious of the mine shaft and sent a crew uh, member down to look at the bottom. And when he did, he found something suspicious and um, it looked like a body. And later they went on multiple attempts down the mine shaft and determined, yes, it was a body. And this was Aaron Cullen. Yes, you talk about 140 feet down in this hole in this stinking, rotting hole. And what do the police find in terms of, we mentioned the garrote in, in the introduction, so what do they find her body in what kind of condition? What can they determine from that, what they find? Yeah, at that point, Erin had been in that, you know, a dank mine shaft in the summer for, you know, several weeks. And so her body was very um, decomposed and almost skeletonized at that point. But they did find <clears throat> a homemade garrote wrapped around her neck and determined that she had been strangled to death. And so they um, um, also gather evidence from the mine shaft, including a Sprite bottle and that propane tank. <laughs> and all that leads to evidence that, you know, um, brings them closer to their main suspect, which at that point was Chris Lee. Right. By this time, he is moved with his family to Anchorage, Alaska. Uh, needless to say, he is arrested and <laughs> taken back. You take us to the, the trial, the preliminary trial, and where all these ducks are in a row and they have him charged. An unusual feature of any trial is when a defendant decides to take the stand. Tell us about some of the features of the trial, the more important aspects of the trial or events in that trial before we talk about Chris and the fantastic story he tells on the stand. Yeah, so the prosecution ends up calling you know, people who knew Aaron, her friends and acquaintances, and they all build a story about, you know, Erin and the affair that she was having with Chris, how it was discovered, Chris's demeanor and his attitude um, following Erin's disappearance, and they um, they have a lot of experts that testify about the physical evidence, and it was determined that Chris's DNA was on the mine the the Sprite bottle mixed with Erin's DNA, and that was found in the bottom of the mine shaft. And so it became like almost a, you know, it seemed like it was going to be a slam dunk case for the prosecution um, because of all the physical evidence um, and the circumstantial evidence that made, um, you know, Chris look guilty. And then in an extraordinary move, Chris decided to take the stand. And um, that changed, uh, you know, everything. At that point, no one had known what his, um, what, the, his defense was going to be and so um, for the first time he admitted that he did kill Aaron and he said that he did it um, as an act of um, not premeditated murder that it was a spontaneous act and he created this very elaborate tale of you know their fair breaking off but um, for a little while but then continuing to see Aaron sleep with Aaron and discovering that he she was having his baby and how he had fallen into depression. But he claimed that um, Aaron, he started getting suspicious of Aaron, that she had this unnatural attachment to his daughter and um, thought that that was odd. <clears throat> so um, he started um, uh, questioning Aaron while they were outside of the mine shaft. 
and asked her, did he touch his daughter, her daughter inappropriately? And Chris said that she said, yes, but, and that that was the last word she ever spoke. And that then he went behind her, grabbed her with a grot, strangled her until she was dead, examined her body, and then dumped her down the mine shaft to dispose of her and claimed this was all a spontaneous act, that he just happened to have a homemade garage, that he just happened to be near the mine shaft when this spontaneous admission um, set him off. And, of course, that was a ridiculous assessment, and no one believed him. Um, of course, the jury didn't believe him, and um, he was ultimately found guilty. It's fascinating. You take us right into the courtroom, and so, of course, when you have a defense lawyer, he puts forth the story with Chris on the on the stand, this ridiculous, fantastic, incredulous story. But in the cross-examination, it gets far more serious. And one of the most dramatic parts of the book is when the prosecutor has him take a, a mannequin, a dummy, and take that garrote and put it around the neck and demonstrate how long it took to strangle Aaron. A very dramatic part of this trial, I would think. Yeah, definitely. And the most dramatic part of the, the courtroom testimony, for sure. So the prosecution had prearranged to have this dummy brought in and have Chris demonstrate for the jury just how long it took to strangle Aaron. And so during cross-examination, he had Chris step down from the witness stand and um, had him demonstrate for the jury um, and had given him a garrote and let him wrap it around um, the dummy the same way that he did for Aaron and then had him hold it and demonstrate for the jury exactly how long it took to strangle this young girl. And so as the, the seconds by and the prosecutor you know, kept claiming you couldn't drop her at that point, you couldn't, you couldn't let go at that point, Chris kept saying no, no, no. And so um, it was very alarming um, and um, very dramatic moment in court and really illustrated the violence behind this girl's murder. Absolutely. The deliberations by the jury didn't take very long. And you talk about the first degree murder conviction with special circumstances. What, what were those special circumstances as described? Yes, so the special circumstances were lying in wait. Um, if they determined that he had been lying in wait or had snuck up behind her, um, that that was going to, um, you know, that was going to be um, something that would have increased the penalty. And so um, he, uh, the jury deliberated for um, just 15 minutes and before deciding that. Aaron was, or I mean, that Chris was guilty, and they decided that um, special circumstances um, applied and that they were going to, um, and they found him guilty and sentenced him to life behind bars without the possibility of parole. Yes. You talk about uh, Lore and the effect of this entire case and trial on her. Um, tell us what happens with Lore, and then another very, very interesting situation with one of the rescue uh, volunteers, Chera Benini, and him having to be rescued. So tell us about the after afterwards with uh, Lore and then with this volunteer rescuer. Yeah, after, um, after the murder, um, the volunteers who worked on the case were all very... Um, personally involved and so a couple of them got together and set up a garden um, out uh, out by the mine shaft where Aaron was found memorial garden for Aaron and um, you know at the same time Laura was dealing with a lot of anxiety and depression and stress having her daughter murdered in such a violent way and having attended the whole trial but at some point she was very spiritual and decided to forgive him, which is one of the most dramatic um, things for me in the book, or one of the most emotional things for me in the book, that she was able to find the strength to forgive him. And then um, in just a crazy, um, I interviewed this one of the rescuers. I interviewed four or five of the rescuers 
um, who worked on the case, five of them. And one of them um, was a young uh, man named Luca Chiabrini, and uh, he told me about his involvement in the case and how he was one of the first guys to go down into the mine shaft. And um, then about um, four or five months later, I'm writing the book and working on it when I get a call um, from one of the other rescuers that told me that Luca had had passed away um, during a rescue mission, or uh, he had to be rescued his own self during a, a camping trip. And so I decided to memorialize him by finishing the book with what happened to him. And so on, uh, on one of his trips, he started crossing the river um, to go back and he was swept down river and the rope that was tied around his waist dug, drug him down underneath the water and he drowned uh, and they, a rescue team had to come out and try and save him. But unfortunately he passed away. Yeah. Incredible, incredible twist. I also wanted to mention the wonderful photos selection that you've included in this book too. There's some remarkable photos that you were, had access to and included in the book. I want to thank you very much for coming on and talking about Secrets of a Marine's Wife, a true story of marriage, obsession, and murder. Um, do you have a Facebook page or website that people might go to to take a look at your other work or more about this case? Yeah, uh, my um, you can visit my website, shannahogan.com. That's S-H-A-N-N-A, Hogan, H-O-G-A-N.com. No slashes or or. Or dots, um, and my Facebook page is under my name, Shanna Hogan. That's Facebook slash Shanna Hogan, and um, I'm also on Twitter and Instagram. So um, I encourage anyone out there who's interested in these cases. I've written three other books, and I'm working on another one um, to follow um, and check out my other work. Absolutely, it's been an absolute pleasure, Shanna Hogan. Thank you very much for coming on and talking about Secrets of a Marine's Wife. It's been a pleasure. Thank, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Great. Thank you. Thanks. Good night.